This is the Interfish Podcast. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief of Interfish Media, uh, sniffling and coughing my way uh, onto the airwaves. It's not coronavirus, but it's some kind of COVID something. But that's not going to stop us from doing our podcast or traveling to upcoming shows, we think. We're not really sure, but we're going to talk about that. I am joined by Rachel Mutter, editor in Kuala Lumpur, John Fiorillo, editor here in Seattle, and Rachel Sapin, business reporter in Seattle as well. Hello, everybody. All right, let's dive in. Let's talk coronavirus. Uh, Rachel, let's go over to you. You wrote a column today that brought a little lightness to everything. Um, News came out this week that Diversified is saying it would be best if there was a no-handshake no contact policy uh, at the Boston Seafood Show. Um, what do you think about that, and how does that change the the face of seafood networking? <laughs> yeah, what do I think about that? It's it's an interesting move. I th- In my mind, I think you either hold an event like this and you hold it as you normally hold it, or you don't hold it. I think this no handshake rule <laughs> is slightly bizarre and probably slightly pointless. I mean, everyone's still breathing on each other, coughing on each other. I mean, it, it just seems a sort of token gesture to say, oh, you know, we really we do care about coronavirus, but not enough to give up, you know, the huge amounts of money we're getting from this show. So I think, yeah, it's a bit of a token gesture, but it's a bit odd. Um, plus, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure it's even really necessary, to be honest. And I'm probably in the minority there because I know everyone's freaking out about it, but... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. No, I'm I'm with you. I think it. I think right now the story and the way that we've been covering it is it's the reaction to the virus, not the virus itself. Um, yeah. You know, and and I mean, but there's no question this has hit the seafood industry like a bombshell, um, given global trade. Um, and I I think it's I think it's interesting. It's just to be clear, Rachel. It is not a policy. It is a recommendation. And these are good, just right. good, straight recommended hygiene practices. But right. the handshake, so, so the what handshake do you do if is. Someone comes up to you to shake your hand. Well, do you like rebut them. I won't is know until a, I. Is that okay? I won't what know until I do it. Sure. You know, there there was a uh, Rachel Sapin just saw that um, the Expo Products West. I think they've they have recommending a fist bump, which you know helps. <laughs> but you're still. T- are you serious? Yeah, yeah, they did. They said fist bumper. What was the other one, Rachel? They said um, I can't remember the other thing they said. Was it eye bump or something? It was something weird. Oh, elbow like, bump. No, it was an it was an elbow, elbow bump. bump. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Eye bump. Eye bump. That's a good way I mean, to get pink just, eyes spreading just, across the globe. Intense <laughs> <laughs> eye contact. It's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just sort of, I'm, I'm loving the image of everyone in Boston just walking around with, like, their hands in their pockets, just <laughs> yeah. sort of idling up to people, all right? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, it's bizarre. I mean, I, well, I don't know, you guys, you guys will be there. John, will you be shaking people's hands, or? Will I be shaking people's hands? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm probably uh, on, not, to the level I nor- not to the level <laughs> I normally do. Mm. Um, uh, what? <laughs> but I'm a, more, I'm a more serious side to this question. Um, you know, we've been getting calls for over a week now about most of them coming in from exhibitors who are saying that their buyers aren't coming. A lot of these mm. are major retail buyers. Um, 
So, you know, kind of to your uh, point, Rachel, it's either you hold these shows correctly or maybe you don't because what, what happens when there are no buyers on the floor? And that's very likely to be the takeaway from this, even if there are some buyers some of the bigger ones <clears throat> won't be there and you know what's the takeaway from there from that and you know we have to keep in mind diversified they, they do great work of course and but one of the things they love to brag about is the quality of their um attendees i.e buyers well that quality could come into some pretty serious question this show so and you know i'm i'm wondering about a show like this and how they're insured against an event like this. If they are, I, I assume they are. And the size of Diversified and the number of shows it, it has, I'm sure um, if insurance is there, they, they've got it. But I'm just kind of curious what financial hit they really would take if they had to cancel it. It's an interesting question because mm. I don't know if people pull out their booths if they can get refunds. I doubt it right I, I mean if they don't go i can't imagine that they would get their money back that seems unlikely yeah i don't think diversified's in the uh, rebate business <laughs> well it's so uh but, but you've been you you posted a poll right on uh oh on yeah we sure did what's, what's um, the response been to that it's been interesting. Let's see. We had, I think, around 100, uh, we had around 100 people posting it. And, Rachel, you showed me this morning. I'll just pull it up. Um, we have 99 votes so far. Um, we posted up yesterday. And 40% said, yes, I would not miss it. 27% said, no, I am taking a pass. 19% said, maybe undecided. Uh, 14% they weren't, uh, said they weren't planning to go. So, And this is a very unscientific Twitter poll, and we all know that Twitter is not exactly a fountain of, of facts. Um, but it what? does, to, to, your, to your point, John, <laughs> we have heard a lot of people um, saying they're concerned about it, they might not go, taking contingencies. Um, and then, you know, our company is mailed around recommendations on, uh, you know, how to, how to handle... Uh, travel and things like that. And when you look at the headlines, it's pretty hard not to expect that there's going to be some other um, some some other fallout. Uh, the Aquafeed conference was shut down. The Economist World Ocean Summit conference was shut down. Um, on and on. I mean, I think there'll be more of this. Uh, I don't think Boston's going to be canceled. Um, and, and in fact, I think it will probably... I think it'll probably be, um, you know, a, a lot fewer people, but I think it will go on. The show will go on, so to speak. Um, but what I am wondering about is Brussels, which is a totally different monster with a much, much higher percentage of Asian pavilions, pavilions from around the world. That, to me, assuming that this continues, is a, a much bigger uh, question for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just to go back to Boston for one quick second, it, you know, for those of us who love to eat the samples as we go around the show for two or three days, um, another thing I've been hearing is uh, the, the whole sampling um, thing that so many booths do with their products is probably going to be curtailed, you know, pretty significantly just uh, for obvious reasons. Um, 
so you know again i think rachel's point is the one like if you're not if the show isn't the show why are you gonna do the show you know i, I don't know i don't know but i i understand you know it's a big event there's a lot of money tied up you gotta have a good reason to pull the plug so yeah i mean and i think it's um i, I mean i don't think people are gonna do it just to to um you know, to prove anything about their, their bravery. Um, but I do think that, um, but I do think that it, it, you know, you have to take calculated risks with travel all the time. And I think that, um, you know, if, if you try to find some calm sources of information, it is all the same recommendations that diversified is given where it's just don't touch your face, wash your hands, just, just normal stuff. Um, so, you know, I, but I think that, um, it's, it's this, um, it's this echo chamber. That's the difficult part. And and we, as the media have a, have a challenge on our hands with it as well. Right. Because everybody wants to read about coronavirus. It's having a massive impact. We have to cover it because it's having a massive impact, uh, on and on and on and on. Um, so it's, it's been, an interesting uh, task to, to cover this in the right way, I think. Um, now, we do know um, that aside from global trade, um, which has been pretty heavily hit, um, we also know the stock markets have plummeted. Um, we did a review, uh, Demi Corbin in London did a review of the, uh, the key seafood stocks, some of the key seafood stocks, just a handful of them, the largest ones. And around a billion dollars in market cap has been wiped out since the beginning of the year, since around when Corona started picking up. So it's having an impact absolutely, um, on the sector. Now, some companies are going to feel it a lot more than others. Obviously, Chinese companies will feel it. And um, some of the Australian, New Zealand companies that rely a lot on the Chinese market will feel it. But one of the other sectors that seems like it will really feel a pinch is going to be um, the frozen seafood sector. Major branded producers like Highliner, uh, like Nomad. Um, their earnings came out just uh, today and yesterday. Um, and it's very interesting because what they are doing is they are, uh, they're stockpiling and Igloo said that they will be finding alternatives to processing in China. Um, and they, uh, you know, they'll be, they'll be holding back product as well. That's going to have a very interesting effect. And we haven't really looked into that much about what the knock on effect of that will be, but that means, if you are stockpiling product, whether you're a supplier or a buyer, that means you are increasing your cold storage costs because you have to hold it somewhere. Um, and and you're, you're, if you're moving your processing from, uh, from China, I can only imagine that processing companies outside of China are getting busier and busier and are probably, um, you know, they're, they're in a pretty good position to, to – um, to drive a pretty hard bargain, I think, on what it will cost to process. So I don't know what long-term that will be, but it's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, so I imagine all the uh, all the quarterly reports and annual reports for the next year will be stained with a sentence that says <laughs> loss tied to coronavirus for some reason or another. But, yeah, I... I, I I wonder too how to what extent it will make people uh, along the supply chain stop and 
reevaluate China's role going forward. You know, you talk about the whitefish processors in particular, you know, so much, you know, we've always heard China is the factory of the world type of thing and, and seafood, you know, that's, that's true in some respects. So I wonder, you know, the long-term really think that this may um, encourage, I wonder what that might be. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I agree, John. I, I think it will probably lead to more sort of diversification of uh, of reliance in terms of market and in terms of reprocessing, I guess. Um, yeah. I think to have all your eggs in one basket is probably not sensible in any scenario. And China, of course, was sort of losing its competitiveness slightly anyway before yeah. this because of the, the tariffs um, and because of labor costs going up. And, uh, you know, as a country gets wealthier, its labor gets more expensive. So it's sort of a a catch-22. So yeah, but I definitely think there'll be there'll be longer-term impacts, and it, and it goes beyond that. Of course, we I think John Evans this week, our correspondent uh, in Brazil, wrote about the uh, the the lack of fish meal supplies going into China. Um, so for Chinese for Chinese buyers of fish meal, that's that's becoming a real problem. Peru has all but stopped supplying fish meal to them um, because it can't get into the country, and that has a that has a huge effect on their aquaculture industry. Um, they're pretty sort of self-reliant in terms of feed, I think. So they need that fish meal supply. And without that, you know, I don't know, know what that does to the, the aquaculture sector. And again, that then has long-term repercussions because markets have to start relying on, on other producers. We've been discussing too, Rachel, about the movement of processing toward countries like Vietnam. And I, th I think you're right. I think this is just going to accelerate that and maybe accelerate the trend toward reshoring as well. Um, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next year with companies deciding to build more domestically and deciding to invest in uh, more automated processing in their own backyards. Because, um, you know, maybe as, as you guys are saying, Maybe this whole um, kind of much criticized um, uh, trade flow of product going to China, coming back, it, it's such a, it really undercuts the sustainability message a lot for seafood. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, and that, that's a, when you look at the, the environmental footprint of doing that, it's, uh, it's, so, it's so heavy to, to, move the, uh, to, to move seafood around the world like that. So it's going to be very interesting. I don't think we're going to know, but I have a feeling that, um, yeah, that we're we're looking at a seismic seismic shift here. Yeah, I agree. And of course, it's, yeah. I think I think what's interesting though is that is that um, the government in the U.S., for example, is not. I mean, this to me plays straight into Trump's hands in terms of trade and in terms of um, sort of self reliance because this is his opportunity to kind of say, ah, oh, you see, America should be producing for itself, you know, and slap more tariffs on everybody else. Um, he doesn't actually seem to be doing that at the moment, because I think he's too concerned about the economics of it all. But, but yeah, we'll see how that plays out, too. I'm sure he'll, he'll take the opportunity to use this um, as a reason to, to put America first once again. So, yeah, interesting dynamics. I, I refuse to be goaded into talking about that person <laughs> that's inhabiting the White House. So good try, but I will shut up. Well, I'll walk through that door. So I, you know, I think um, one of the things that we've been um, looking at or wondering about, and we we haven't gotten a, a story done on this yet, but 
it's definitely on the on top of our mind is it's quite often that domestic producers seize on these types of uh, these types of health issues as an opportunity for protectionism. Um, or just an opportunity to mess with people and kind of show their strength. R Russia is uh, a master at this. They're doing it right now with um, Chilean salmon producers. Um, and they'll use issues like, you know, they call them phytosanitary or sanitary and health measures. And, and they'll, um, they'll use those as an excuse to block uh, product coming in um, for a range of reasons. And I can, we know that this is, this has become a style that the Trump administration is, has mimicked with its sort of um, protectionist bent. And so I would not be surprised if we see domestic producers, I'm looking at you wild shrimpers, um, kind of raising the possibility or raising the idea that Chinese products um, may have some kind of contamination and... Sometimes those things can catch on. Sometimes uh, people can see through it and say, look, we need, we need product. These uh, many, many businesses rely on it. But there are some pretty powerful, influential senators in those Gulf states that, um, you know, it doesn't take much. This is the, this is the age of conspiracy theories. Um, the coronavirus was, depending on what you read, began in uh, a Wuhan um, wet fish market or a Wuhan wild um, wild food market uh, that's been under question but um, it would be not too surprising and I, I would be um, very surprised if, if those conversations haven't already happened and, and then we're talking about a whole a whole new um, level of this so let's see about that let's weaponize a crisis always good Good approach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I have a feeling that we will never be uh, having a podcast without coronavirus. I, I hope we do, um, but maybe it'll get less and less mention as time goes on. Um, let's hope. Like I said, <clears throat> like I said, I am. You can you can tell I'm not fully well, but that's okay. I'm gonna f use this cold to fight coronavirus. That makes perfect sense. I'm on my way to North Atlantic, uh, the North Atlantic Seafood Forum in Bergen on Saturday, um, and I'm sure it's going to be absolutely fine, and my tickets are booked for Boston. I'm going to be there unless the airports are closed. So there we go. Uh, all right. Well, Rachel Sapin, let's move on to you. Um, a fascinating story, some great reporting on the seafood startup Upstart whichever one of those words you want to use, uh, Love the Wild, which has a, a, fascinating, a fascinating background, um, had a really big splash when they launched, and um, now not so clear. So tell us a bit about what's, what's going on with that company. Yeah, so I, I contacted Claudia, Jacqueline Claudia again, eventually found out that she has not been in retail since May of 2019 um, because it was just too tough to sell her very unique premium product in that space. Um, she talked about just issues with um, the price and that it was hard to have, you know, such a unique microwavable to seafood product in uh, the retail space that's offering things like Barramundi and Redfish um, at the price she wanted to offer those products at. And she's also competing with, you know, Trident's and Gorton's in that space as well. And, um, it all kind of eventually weighed down on her, and that was from the company, you know, being founded in 2014, and and her getting 
um, investment from Leonardo DiCaprio at one point and Love the Wild really being this um, firebrand in the seafood space. So it's a, it's a sad story. Um, you know, she's a very unique person in the seafood world, but it just says a lot about what kind of companies can exist um, in this industry. Yeah, what does that tell us about um, innovation and what does it tell us about the bar about the the barrier for entry and bringing new ideas into into seafood in general i think that it's just you can come with the the best backing and you know the best idea and uh really solid uh support and investors and marketing and you can still just fail because you know it's just seafood is such a strange product in the u.s and it's just the same couple companies, you know, are the only ones that really have the resources to survive the really small margins that um, seafood sells at in the U.S. It's kind of fascinating. Um, so, yeah, she had a lot going against her, uh, really, to begin with, you know, being a woman-owned, woman-started, just her, you know, really her idea. Um, and she had a very unique product. She was really trying to promote aquaculture and also underutilized species and also have a product that's microwavable as seafood with those really unique species like redfish. Um, and yeah, I think she just came up against um, a lot of challenges she ultimately couldn't overcome, at least for seafood in the retail space. I think she ran up against the reality that, you know, getting shelf space in retail, whether it's at the freezer case or somewhere else, is extremely difficult. And just because you think you have a great product and you have some funding from a Hollywood guy or whatever it may be, that doesn't mean squat to a seafood buyer at Kroger or anything like that. They, they only give space to performing products. And I'm sorry, that's the way it is. Secondly, love the wild and it's farm fish. I, I'm sorry, that never made sense to me. I think it's a convoluted message. Seafood is hard to sell anyways when the message just says fresh fish. <laughs> so now go and complicate it with love the wild, but it's farmed. I, I, I think there were a lot of missteps along the way. So, you know, yes, it is a sad story. And you could look at it as, you know, innovation is being punished, but I don't, I don't look at it that way myself. I mean, I just think, you know, innovation for innovation's sake doesn't necessarily mean you get to sell your product at the biggest retailers in the world. Well, I think it also speaks to what retailers say they want and what they actually want. And, you know, the, the slotting fees and the costs that you have to pay to get product listed and where it's listed. So if I remember, Rachel, part of it was the challenge for, for Love the Wild was kind of the placement of some of their products as well, being placed in the freezer case versus in the bowl case, for example. I mean, all these little things that I think when you get down into the nuts and bolts of, of retailing, it gets really complicated and really expensive. And so, I, you know, I think that retailers like talking about sustainable aquaculture, sustainable seafood, all these things. And I don't mean to put things always on the retailer's doorsteps, although I end up doing that. But I, I feel that there is a lot more uh, lip service about 
innovation in uh, in seafood and about what retailers want, especially in the frozen case. And then ultimately, like you said, Rachel, there are about maybe four frozen retail brands that the majority of Americans would have even heard of. Um, and I think you'd say for most of our lives, um, and Rachel Mutter, it would be obviously the same on, in, in the UK, right? But with two other producers, but most of our lives, you've seen a, a sea of blue for Vandekamp's and a sea of yellow for Gorton's. And it just doesn't seem like, um, I don't know how the industry breaks out of that. And I think it's, um, it's a shame that I think retailers aren't willing to take some risks, but this is me not fully understanding how those products cycle through, John, and the amount of time that they're giving to try to prove themselves because maybe that's too short or maybe it's just the way it is. I don't know. Maybe it is, but the environment the retailers are working in, as you know, is extremely competitive with tiny, tiny margins, probably more so than seafood. So, you know, I agree. You don't get a lot of time to prove yourself, but that's, you know, if that's the nature of the beast, that's the nature of the beast. I, I mean, I can't, I can't go to the point where I'm saying retailers are not open to innovation at all. I just, I don't believe that, but you know, they're, they're very selective because they cannot lose uh, from a competitive point of view to the next retailer down the line. So, yeah, and I think you sort of hit the nail on the head with the when you mentioned, you know, too big a too big a step or, or steps missing in the process. And I think maybe that that is part of it because because Drew, as you said, sort of in in certain markets, we're used to these traditional seafood products, and that's how we eat seafood, and we don't really eat it any other way. And to leap from like a fish finger to the kind of stuff that Love the Wild was doing. You know, maybe it's just too big a leap. I mean, sad, but true. Um, and also, to me, it sort of smacks of the of the sort of introspection, I guess, of the of the seafood sector sometimes, that, that you can sort of get something so wrong. That sounds harsh, but, you know, within the industry, a company like Love the Wild was really sort of built up and it was the real sort of golden child of, of seafood innovation and, and it absolutely was an innovative company, but, you know, to go from that, to go from this is the best company we've ever produced to it just sort of collapsing, you know, there's something wrong there. There's something that the seafood industry doesn't understand about the market, about the retail, uh, the retail arena. Um, yeah. And I think it just needs to sort of maybe educate itself a bit better. I don't know. Well, I'm too well, harsh on the US seafood industry, but. Keep in mind that this isn't, you know, isn't unique to Love the Wild. A few years mm. ago, Drew, I don't remember exactly, but Bumblebee rolled out a big line of frozen bagged this and that, you know, uh, fillets or I can't rich shrimp. I can't even remember anymore. But uh, as far as I know, that flopped. So even the big yeah. guys, you know, strike out. Yeah, it's kind of a catch twenty two because there needs to be more innovation, and yet. I'm not sure the market is ready for too much innovation. So I'm not quite sure where that puts people, but it's, yeah, it's difficult. At 16 pounds a person, yeah, consumption, exactly. you know, nobody's exactly. going out of their way to give shelf space to some <laughs> crazy new seafood product. I think that's kind of, if we were to look at the, one of the positive lessons here 
I think that that's what uh, Love the Wild did really well. That was the genius, and that's actually uh, Jacqueline Claudia's background is marketing. And that's what was done very well here, I think. I think the nuts and bolts of production and retail listing and all that, that, you know, that's a whole nother ball of wax. That's operational. Um, you need both. But I think she deserves really good kudos for going out there, lifting the profile. I mean, getting Leonardo DiCaprio to invest in your product is not a small thing. Um, you know, getting that level of profile is not a small thing. But you need to have operationally things, uh, you know, things in place. You need to have the product to back it up. Um, now, I know that I, pray, I heaped praise on Sam and I think, pod, last podcast or the one before that. But, um, but I, think that, uh, I think that movie is a great example with what they just rolled out or are, sorry, are about to roll out with Amazon Fresh, uh, a premium fresh never frozen line. Um, and that's one where they have the logistics in place. That's really, really important, right? That they can actually deliver a product that they can market and sell as a ultra premium line and actually be able to say, yep, it's an ultra premium line. It's fresh, never frozen, and we can get it to your doorstep. Um, Rachel, you broke the story. Tell us a little bit about what they're trying to accomplish there um, and, uh, and, yeah, kind of how it came about. Yeah, so movie's been, um, they introduced that line in Movie Pure in Poland last year, and it's also been introduced to some other European markets, and this year is their first rollout of their brand, really in general, um, as movie, not as Marine Harvest in the U.S., and they're doing it first through Amazon Fresh as a Fresh Never Frozen option, and they told me they were really interested in doing it that way because they get um, so much real-time data on U.S. consumers uh, purchasing products products with Amazon. Uh, they think the consumer will be really interested in kind of a Japanese cut, cool premium salmon product from very special sounding <laughs> salmon farms in Norway. Um, and I think it's just a really interesting approach. I'm kind of curious how that will position them in the U.S. to do it that way, because it gives them so much data before they go to brick and mortar uh, stores, which they do plan to do as well in the U.S., but I think they're kind of just trying to see how things work out here a little bit which i find really smart because retailers are just going through a really tough time in general general right now so it, it does seem kind of smart to maybe do that online see who's buying it see who's interested and amazon's such a huge entity here globally and is just growing the the fascinating thing that you mentioned in your story is that idea of real-time analytics which i think is we're just at the very beginning of um and being able to see real time uh, what's happening with uh, seafood sales on a platform like Amazon, which I know some people are able to do that. There's obviously retroactive looking IRI data and Nielsen data. But as we all know, when we're moving around on the Amazon site, Amazon is watching every track of our mouse. They're watching every click. They're watching every purchase. They're watching every near purchase. They're watching every search. They are a data company more than anything. Um, and so I think it's going to be really interesting to see if movies able to capture this to help unlock the U.S. consumer a bit more. Even though Amazon Fresh is pretty pretty young and isn't in by any means isn't in all the all the markets, um, I think that is a really really smart way to start to pinpoint out 
who is going to be interested in consuming fresh salmon, not just the premium stuff, but but uh, but normal stuff as well. Well, not not to be contrary, but I'm going to be contrary. I just uh, the value proposition of this new product is it's fresh, never frozen. That that's that's it. That's kind of the big thing. It looks really pretty. <laughs> I mean, I just from uh, watching it, like, yeah, honestly, I'm all about like, does it look cool? Like, what can I use it for? Like, I, I definitely fall for that kind of stuff. And obviously, grocery delivery for fresh is like a fascinating concept. And it's really just, I was looking, I didn't include this in the story, but Amazon Fresh is actually, um, actually doing pretty well as a division. Uh, just around last year, I think it started seeing some improvements because that's been Amazon's toughest sell so far, I believe. They've had a real issue getting into that fresh delivery. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see how movie does there. And, yeah, I don't know. Uh, they already have, like, you know, so much. They're not a love the wild. They have a ton of room to fail. Um, so I think that gives movie kind of the leverage to do these kind of projects. All right, well, let's wrap it up there. Uh, just a reminder, as I said, we are the official media partner at North Atlantic Seafood Forum. That begins next Tuesday. Um, always a great event. Uh, should be really well attended. It's in Bergen, so you're at the seafood capital there. Um, and uh, you've got movie, you've got Cargill, you've got Lero, you've got a whole bunch of people that um, just are, are able to walk down the street to attend the event. So it's a, a really interesting show. Uh, and then right after that, of course, we do have the Boston Seafood Show. And as of now, uh, we'll be there. So let's see. If you are there and if it does go ahead on the 16th, we do have an event. We have our Seafood Leadership Luncheon. And we have some really fantastic speakers that are lined up. We have Roger Berkowitz, the CEO of Legal Seafoods, is going to be uh, giving our keynote. We'll have American Seafood CEO Michael Durham. Uh, we'll have Clearwater Seafood CEO Ian Smith, uh, DNB, Antarctica Advisors. It's, it's really going to be a, um, a fantastic, a fantastic event. So let's hope everybody braves the uh, this cold season and gets there. All right, folks, we'll speak to you next week. Thank you.